Happy March to you, OCD family community, and welcome back to the OCD family podcast. I'm glad you're here today because we will be getting back to the basics with our special guest, Dr. Jesse Spiegel. So get yourselves comfortable, fam, because we are going to march right on into today's conversation. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent, and let me be the first to say, Welcome to the family, the CD family that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. So, last week, I wrapped up a five-part series about finding unity and diversity, and I really cherished that series. Kicking off the new year with lived experience warriors and then highlighting the importance of finding unity and diversity, it was such a privilege. And as I hope I've communicated well enough, it's an ongoing conversation. So though that series has come to a close, I still have some dynamic guests scheduled throughout the rest of season one, and we are going to have ongoing chitty chats here as I look forward to sharing those with you. Today, though, today, I'm also excited to get back to some of the basics when we think about OCD. So for starters, I just want to do a shout out to any of our newer fam. Welcome to our family gathering. I get that OCD and OCD-related disorders are a lot to take in, particularly in the beginning of understanding this experience has a name. But a lot of folks are coming into this diagnosis after living the majority of their lives with it. Adults average, average, y'all, average, meaning some much less, but some much more average 14 to 17 years before getting a proper diagnosis for OCD, and kiddos tend to average around two and a half years, which, depending on their age, proportionally could be a significant chunk of their life. I've shared openly with our fam here about how I have lived experience of OCD too, and I had no clue that I had OCD masquerading around as anxiety, even after a few years of treating OCD and being trained as a specialist in treating it. So if you didn't catch it, or know it by name, fam, I get it. I really, really do get it. I mean, I'm looking at 30 plus years, at least, that's a conservative estimate, of living with OCD myself. And hey, if you want to hear more about my personal journey to learning that OCD was really underneath it all for me, you can check out Christina Orlova's podcast, The OCD Whisperer, where I had the pleasure of being her guest last week and sharing more about my journey. And she's fancy, y'all. I mean, she publishes a video podcast, and you can still do the Audible podcast through your favorite podcasting apps. But she also has a video version on YouTube, and people really enjoy watching their podcasts. So you can check her out, whether you want to learn more about my journey or any of the other fantastic supports and resources that she provides through OCD Whisper. Also, speaking of Christina, she is going to be a guest here at our family table next week, so I'm really looking forward to y'all getting to know her a bit better. But today, we are welcoming Dr. Jesse Spiegel to this family conversation, and we will be talking about y'all. 
That's right. You. You're like, did she, did she say me? I said you. That's right. We're talking to you, the amazing support community. And we're going to broadly overview what OCD is, how it shows up in families and kiddos, parents, siblings, partners, spouses. That's right. What it looks like to start treatment and treatment itself. What is treatment? What are the options available to you, to your loved ones? And we're starting here with exposure and response prevention therapy. Now, this therapy, which we commonly refer to as ERP in our field, falls under the greater cognitive behavioral therapy umbrella, and it's going to be more of our focus for today. It's touted as the gold standard for treatment here in the States, and it's brought a lot of hope and freedom to many a clients, their loved ones, this community, to me. So many here in our fam have likely heard a thing or two about ERP or are currently living that hashtag ERP life. Am I too old to just create my own hashtags? I don't know. I do it anyway. <laughs> I'm old enough to not care if I'm too old. Oh, but yeah, I mean, if you're living that ERP life, you're well aware of what ERP is. But some of you might have no clue what this is all about or are immediately turned off because the word exposure without knowing fully what that could mean does not sound fun or like what you want to do. If anything, maybe you're avoiding exposure. So Dr. Spiegel and I are going to try and break this down to make it easier to digest. Y'all have little kids. And Dr. Spiegel, he has a, a young toddler son. And for any parents listening out there, we all know what it's like to cut things down into bite-sized pieces. It reduces choking hazards. It's easier for little ones to gobble up everything they need to eat. And sometimes we even get into these negotiations with how many bites do we need to do? <laughs> how many bites of sustenance do you need? And so if you're new to this and ERP sounds really daunting, one option is to be able to kind of cut this down into little bite-sized pieces and just start with a couple small bites. And then additionally, next week, we will talk more about ICBT, that's inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy, also under the greater umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's also an option. You know, we're struggling with the bites here. It's good to know we got some options. So we'll be discussing that more next week. We'll touch on it a little bit today because I can't help it, y'all. I can't help it to touch on ICBT a little bit because it's an option there, as well as ERP, which I will always echo is an option as well. So we're going to be looking at ERP a little more in depth today and the treatment of OCD. And I really, I just look forward to continuing the hope for you, for you fam, as we continue to learn more. Now, for our veteran family here in the community, yes, yes, we're going to overview OCD and ERP and all the acronyms here. But please let me just say this. This conversation is for all of us, not just new fam, for all of us, the whole fam. Because revisiting these foundational aspects, even for myself as a treatment provider, let alone as someone living with OCD myself, it's important because these foundational aspects help to create what we refer to as cognitive feedback loops here in the field. Now, I'm guessing most of us are familiar with the loops and spirals because OCD thought loops have been torturing OCD sufferers for long enough. But not all loops are torture, y'all. I particularly like loops that I can wear on my fingers and are shiny and shimmery and gold. <laughs> I wouldn't frown at some sterling silver either. Let me just put that out there. But not all loops are torture. And this loop, the cognitive feedback loop, is really great. It's a wonderful tool. It helps us in learning, okay, what are we doing? How did it go? And what did we learn from it? 
sounds pretty basic, but how often do we slow down and really even just write out like, okay, what did I do here today? And how did it go? Was I successful? What was my level at? What did we learn? Didn't kill me this time. Maybe the big bad fear didn't come true this time. Or maybe it did come true and you know what? It wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. So within cognitive feedback loops, what we're doing is we're reinforcing the positive adaptive learning in the brain. And that helps these sticky thoughts, these repetitive intrusive thoughts that we find in OCD get unstuck. And it helps us move toward our values and our goals in life versus OCD's agenda of what could be, might be, is possible. Also though, a huge benefit of revisiting the cognitive feedback loop here in our foundational elements of OCD is what about when things aren't going well? Maybe you're in treatment. Maybe you're like, you know what? It sucks and I'm not doing better or my my kids in treatment and they say it sucks and they're refusing to engage in this. Or maybe, hey, I have made some progress, but here, here, right here, the sticky part right here, I can't. I, it, I don't know what's going wrong. Like, it's just not helping. Treatment can feel at times like it stalls or maybe it never really felt like it took off in the first place. And the OCD sufferer and the family can wonder, are we doing this right? The therapist definitely can question, am I leading this correctly? Am I messing this up? Am I the imposter? And amidst this sea of unknowns, we know that OCD just loves a cozy environment of distressing uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So revisiting that cognitive feedback loop can be a really powerful therapeutic tool. And it's another reason why I'm excited that Dr. Siegel and I are going back to the basics here. So let's get to this because I'm excited for y'all to meet Dr. Siegel and for us to hear more. Well, thank you for joining us today. And I'm so excited because I have a fellow SoCal, I like to still claim myself as a fellow, my heart is still in Los Angeles, I love the Los Angeles community, but a fellow colleague here in Dr. Jesse Spiegel, and I am just so excited to share with you, OCD family community, a little bit more about Dr. Spiegel. So he is a licensed clinical psychologist. He works with people in the greater Los Angeles area, and he is available for treatment in the greater Los Angeles area, as well as telehealth throughout both California and New York, just in case you're in a remote area and you're like, I'm not near the people. It's okay. It's okay. Telehealth has really opened up some doors for that. And so he specializes in the treatment of children, adolescents, and adults struggling with OCD, OCD-related disorders, anxiety, depression, insomnia, and other behavioral challenges. Dr. Spiegel is also a clinical instructor in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. I like that, I have to say, Dr. Spiegel, because I have so many friends, and maybe these are fighting words, but I'm okay with it because I'm from Indiana, so I'm a Notre Dame girl. But I have a lot of friends that are Trojans, and so I like that you are working with the Bruins. And again, if, if that invites some hostility, well, then I am inviting it. Oh, uh, so no alliance. Yeah, you have no alliance. See, oh, look, Dr. Spiegel is not going to take sides. So that's probably the smarter choice, Dr. Spiegel. I like that. He's also the vice co-chair for ADAA. That's the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. 
for the OCD special interest group. So that is fabulous. He is working with some dynamic people along in that special interest group. And he has also received extensive training in OCD and anxiety. He's worked along numerous experts in the field, which is why we are so lucky to have him today because he is also an expert in OCD. He has been trained in space, which if you've been with our community for a while, you know is a parenting program that helps support parents of anxious childhood emotions, really. That's what SPACE stands for. But it is really facilitating that environment for your loved one, for your children, to be able to provide some ERP in the environmental space, in that home space, in that family relationship. And so he has been trained in SPACE with Ellie Lubowitz, and you've had your BTTI, which it's kind of where some of this was born for me. I did some BTTI training and I thought, I am so lucky to be in the network of these great professionals in a very generous field. And so, Dr. Spiegel, we are so excited to have you here. Welcome to the table here at OCD Family Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to join. Yes, absolutely. And we are excited to have you. So today we're going to be talking about families and the family environment and really what can we do to a survive <laughs> just kind of stay afloat in the moment because we're going to have people joining us that are well established into the OCD journey and we're going to have people that are just like I don't know I just heard of this thing and somebody said to listen this and it feels really overwhelming still and so we're going to be talking about the family environment, some of the challenges that come up with OCD, some of the strengths, because I think sometimes with something, especially that is intrusive in nature like OCD, when we're talking about dealing with the brevity of these intrusive thoughts, it's hard to sometimes focus on the strengths. But I think there's a lot of strengths that come through the journey, and there are strengths that our loved ones that our OCD sufferers have as well. And so we can talk a bit about that and just really some strategies for families and spouses, partners to be able to really thrive, not despite, but in reflection of this dynamic happening in the family. So let's talk about, and just broadly, but let's review for especially any new family members here, what is OCD and how does that show up in the family? Sure. And, and how I would really characterize OCD, there's two pieces. There's the obsessional piece and the compulsions, obsessive compulsive disorder. So obsessions are pretty much any thought, feeling, or image that the person does not want to have. Mm -hmm. So for kids, this could be just a feeling of this uncomfortable feeling in their body and where it's just really uncomfortable and they don't want to have it. There's just nothing they can do to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Then for older kids or for teenagers, and this also can apply for younger kids too, it can be that just right feeling. There's other types that it can come as well. They could have suddenly these intrusive thoughts that they could hurt someone else, that they could hurt themselves. They have intrusive obsessions over contamination. Again, these are things that are flooding and that they absolutely do not want to have. For the second piece of it with the obsessive compulsive disorder is compulsions. And pretty much this is 
The next piece, right after that intrusive thought, that intrusive feeling where the the person, the kid, the adult, whoever has OCD is pretty much trying to do whatever they can to get rid of that uncomfortable thought, that uncomfortable feeling. And it can take a variety of forms. It can be seeking reassurance. It can be literally saying all of your thoughts out to get rid of all of those bad thoughts so that more of that confessing component. Sure. Yeah. And it can be washing, it could be counting, ordering. And again, these with the compulsions, they have a tendency to become repetitive and they do not have to exactly line up with whatever the theme that the obsessional theme. So someone could have fears of contamination and getting dirty and lo and behold, they have to count in their head repeatedly to get rid of that contamination obsession. So there's usually not so much logic involved with OCD. And then the the final piece of it is that this is also something, there's a term called ego dystonic. Mm-hmm. So the compulsions that the people do, they, they know it doesn't make much sense, but yet they are compelled to, they feel they have to do whatever they can to get rid of that unwanted intrusive thought or feeling. Right. Perfect. So Ego dystonic and yeah, for anyone new. So we throw these terms around a lot at OCD Family Podcast. But yes, those feelings that do not connect with who you feel yourself to be, but they're really in opposition of who you feel yourself to be. And so you can see enter distress where it can feel really intrusive and heavy and icky inside if you're having some ego dystonic thoughts because this doesn't connect with who I imagine myself to be or think I am. And what if, what if I am this person? And it can be very, very scary. In terms of the family setting, and if you have a kiddo with compulsions that include confession, you might have somebody telling you, I have this thought, do you think I'm going to hurt somebody? Right. But a lot of times, where we're going to start to observe some things popping up. We're going to see not necessarily what it's connected to, but we're going to see the the rituals or the routines or the avoidance that our loved ones may be engaging in as it relates to these intrusive thoughts. And so those compulsions, like you said, can include asking for reassurance. They could be rituals like going back and forth through a doorway or counting. It could be completely something they're doing mentally and thinking over, but they can really range. And when they get to this point where they're really sticky, these thoughts, they are reoccurring and causing distress that really start to interfere with your enjoyment at home, your ability to engage at school or at work or in the community the way you once were at church communities even. Certainly, this can pop up. This is where we get into that disordered area. And so disordered sounds so negative. It's so pejorative. But it's really just saying, hey, this is, this is interrupting with my life. It's affecting my quality of life here. And so the good news is there's a lot of hope. But it can be kind of tricky to know what you're dealing with in terms of this. And so in terms of being able to spy, I spy kind of OCD in this realm, what kind of strategies would you have, which we don't want to, you know, just look around at people and diagnose them in our heads. But what kind of things should we be aware of in terms of kind of some flags if maybe we already have 
children that are dealing with anxiety and we don't know if it's OCD or feelings of panic and we don't know if it's OCD. What would be some indicators where we could go, ah, I should reach out to Dr. Spiegel or somebody in my area and see if, it, if we can get an evaluation for this? A question that I will often ask kids and, and likewise for their parents too, but when I first see kids in my office, I will ask, what are ways where their anxiety or their distress has basically gotten in the way of them being a kid and doing their role? So whether this means hanging out with friends, doing their schoolwork, being able to connect with their parents or if they have any siblings, but what are basically just various ways where they are stuck on their thoughts, their feelings, and they just, they can't be a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and that's usually where we can get a little bit of insight on what may be going on in their head, as well as their response or behaviors to these thoughts, these fears that are distressing for them. Yeah. And, you know, I think also, I think sometimes having that team of people, if you have a school-age child, for example, you're probably in communication with the teacher, right? And the teacher's probably observing some concerns or not, or they would be able to also partner with you. Other people in the child's life, if they're involved in sports or extracurriculars or whatnot, or if they're feeling too distressed where they used to enjoy those things. Timmy used to be a great soccer player, and now he doesn't even really want to leave the house, let alone go to practice. You know, not to say that Timmy's for sure an OCD case. Something's going on with Timmy where he's not enjoying what he once enjoyed. And so being able to explore that is worthwhile. So in terms of looking deeper into this, then what what do you think is the best next step as people, if they haven't yet looked into treatment, what would be the best next step? in terms of going forward with this process, if they're like, okay, so I'm seeing some of these things that are getting in the way of our kiddos getting to fully be themselves, which we've been able to see before. So you would know because you would be like, it's, they used to love this. They used to do this. They used to enjoy that. And now it's very different. What would you recommend in terms of the treatment process? And can you give the family an idea of what that would look like? As far as the treatment itself? Yeah. So they're going to call maybe to get an evaluation. But how do, how do we evaluate this? And what would that process look like if we were trying to conceptualize the sequence of coping with OCD? Sure. So for OCD, basically, when you would set up an initial appointment, the therapist would go over all the ways that OCD is getting in the way of the life for your kid, whether again, school, being able to do sports or partaking in music, whatever extracurricular activities is what the home life is really just trying to get a full behavioral analysis of all the ways that OCD is interfering, causing them significant distress. And then likewise, OCD does not impact just the kiddo involved. It impacts the entire family. So how are parents responding differently because of their child's distress? We want to know what's going on with that and too. What they're doing, likewise, they're 
no longer partaking in certain activities that they used to do. If they're maybe behaving differently for the one child who has OCD than they would for if they had any other child or that they would in probably other circumstances, because that's going to provide a framework for how OCD is disrupting everyone's life and also what can be done differently. So that's kind of the initial step is more of an analysis and assessment of what is going wrong. Yeah. Or how it's interfering. And then after that, it's the, the meat of as far as taking steps to make a change and what can be done differently for everyone involved. Yeah. And it really does affect the family, which is part of why this community exists, right? Because it is it is very, very challenging to really sometimes even know how to address the problem in a different way because I found, and, you know, would love to hear your thoughts on this too, Dr. Spiegel, but I have found that sometimes the parents are like, I'm not even sure who my kid is then, because the way I relate to them in terms of now understanding how sneaky their OCD is in seeking certain responses from me and reassurance and having me do things for them that they're avoidant of because they're feeling too distressed and whatnot. Like sometimes it's a big surprise for people. Additionally, we see this sometimes when kids are going off to college or whether they've graduated and they're moving on into the workforce or whatnot. When they leave the house where parents become these kind of gatekeepers for certain compulsions to be reinforced that they're not even aware of, then the kids can go away to college and then they're like, oh, they have this big, severe spike. Sometimes because it's like, well, we didn't realize how much mom and dad were doing to help insulate what was going on for me. But also for the parents, they're like, well, I didn't even know that was OCD and I don't even know how to relate to my kid now because I, I'm getting confused and worried that I'm going to be reinforcing the OCD. So in terms of knowing that it does impact a family, but the OCD is pretty sneaky. In terms of the way that it can really get in there and try to become the ringmaster and turning the family into this big CD circus, what tips would you have for families in terms of not only getting support, but really learning about what's going on so that they can feel more confident in, yes, OCD is sneaky, but I'm pretty smart myself and we've got this. And so in terms of working on that familial piece, you were trained in space. Do you tend to do space more or do you do family work with maybe with the kiddo and the family or how does that look? Does it range for you? There's a wide variety uh-huh. as far as kind of how I work with the family. I'd say with younger kids, I always have parents involved in the sessions uh-huh. as far as they participate in all of them. And again, I want to say this, there's no exact directive. So for each case, there can be a certain amount of individuality of what makes the most amount of sense. Right. Uh, but I always do want to have family involved. I, I do want to have parents involved because, again, OCD is not just something that impacts the individual. E- even if you take someone who's married, you know, it's going to impact their spouse too. So oh, yeah. Ideally, in those circumstances, I mean, we want to respect what they, what they're willing to do as well, just because it can feel very private. But we want to include significant others or for kids that parents have to be involved. I I would say as children begin to get older and older, well, 
We want to also promote independence too. This is just natural steps. If you think about how you're going to go off to college, you're going to be more independent. So we want to have some time just for then a teenager to have for themselves as well. Just not necessarily include parents, but that really, honestly, the family unit, it needs to be involved. And it's also going to be really important because this type of therapy there's a lot of work that happens outside the office. So we will practice exposures, for instance, in session, but exposures have to be practiced at a session. And I, I personally find it, it's very hard to depend on a seven-year-old to do their exposure work on their own and they need guidance from their parents. The parents need to know how to do it as well. So I view myself as kind of often providing that coaching. So lo and behold, when they leave the office, they can do it on their own. And then as likewise, if they need to to check in, I'm readily available to outside of the session. Yeah. So you are referencing the different exposures and the different roles that we all get to play. Therapist often gets a coaching role. That parent is really the most amazing of cheerleaders. Siblings can certainly be there as well. Our star players can be our OCD sufferers. But what we're talking about there is exposure and response prevention therapy. And exposure and response prevention therapy has long been the gold standard for OCD treatment. And so just kind of real broadly, and again, for this is mainly for the newbies, because for the people that have been around, they're like, oh, yeah, we know ERP. <laughs> Whereas somebody said to me in session uh, the other day, they were like, what about ERP? And I was like, well, oh, yeah, okay. ERP, right. Yeah. I had to think about that. I had to think, yeah, I had to think about it too. And then I was like, ERP, yeah, that makes sense. Because I realized like we do ERP on the regular, but I didn't think about it in that way. And so that was kind of a fun little moment. But yeah, so just kind of a broad overview. And you've already spoken to or alluded to some of the exposure pieces and a lot of that homework happening outside of the session. But can you tell the listening audience here a little more about what is ERP and why do we do ERP when we're thinking about and conceptualizing treatment for OCD? Yeah. And so what I would say is exposure response prevention, the treatment, one of the main treatments for OCD. I'll try to give a a, a quick elevator speech for it. If I were to boil it down, the E exposures, it's about Facing your fears, whatever is causing distress and you're avoiding. So for instance, if someone has contamination of sessions, well, lo and behold, they can be touching items that are dirty, that are contaminated, that they would avoid. If that's just too distressing to them, maybe they can get closer to that seared object. And the idea behind this is that the longer you're in is something that is distressing. Well, lo and behold, your fear goes down. And you could think of it kind of like if you were watching a scary movie and you watched the first time you watched it, oh my God, it's so, so terrifying. But if you watch that same scene again and again, well, the distress often goes down. But let's even just say for whatever reason, it does not go down. The idea is you learn that you can handle the fear. So that that's one piece of how this treatment works. The other piece which is the response prevention is beforehand, people with uh, fears will do all sorts of behaviors or family will provide ways that they accommodate. They do things differently to minimize the distress. So if the contamination person won't touch certain door handles, maybe mom and dad will clean their items for them. 
So all these behaviors, they help in the short run and parents will have to do frequently things to get by in life that, that get, that is a necessary piece of parenting. Right. But for the purpose of OCD, these behaviors from the whole family, they're helpful in the short run, but in the long run, kid remains stuck, family remains stuck. So it's about breaking these behaviors, maybe doing the opposite or doing them differently. So that's the response prevention, where then if you have the exposures, they're facing their fears, and now they're doing it differently, lo and behold, OCD becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. And so that's really key because as we have talked about before within CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure therapy is really helpful for anxiety disorders and things like even separation anxiety or phobias. But also when we're looking at OCD, we find that just doing the exposures does not help the brain learn new strategies because what it's getting stuck on really are these different safety behaviors and compulsions and thoughts that are aimed to minimize, neutralize, or avoid the distress related with the initial thought. And so exposing oneself to some of these triggers for these intrusive thoughts in a typical anxiety model, CBT model, we would just do that exposure and the brain would habituate over time. But what we find in OCD is that response prevention in place of doing compulsions is really what helps break the cycle, this the spiral really of that sticky thought getting really stuck and lodged there. And it may not disappear completely, but for some people it, it can or maybe it'll ebb and flow. But the reality is that distress and that getting in the way of you living your best life just as you were talking earlier, is your child getting to be who they are? That's that's what we're treating. And so even if it doesn't completely disappear, if they're able to go, yeah, I can tolerate it. I can live my life still, even if I feel that ickiness, that's, that's a win. And so we love looking for those wins. But it's interesting. My son has OCD. I also have OCD. So I've learned about OCD. I'm like, oh, man, we've, we've, we've definitely got plenty of it going on in our family. And so, you know, at face value, if you're saying, okay, so for treatment, you're afraid that if you touch the door handle, let's go with that one that you were mentioning earlier. And again, it can have a very logical, seemingly logical connection, or it can have a magical connection of if I turn this stadium of people, but that would be surprising. But it could be their magical connection, or it could be like, I'm going to get germs, I'm going to get the flu. The flu is going around and now I'm going to get the flu and somehow that'll get to grandma and then I'm going to kill grandma and so I can't touch the door handle. So let's say it's the door handle scenario. So if if we're going into treatment and we're saying, okay, so time to do the exposure and we're going to practice touching the door handle, but without our compulsions, without our safety behaviors. So we're not going to avoid turning it and only mom turns it or we're not going to turn it and then go wash our hands 20 times and go through a bottle of soap just to make sure and then double check and ask everybody in the family 18 times if grandma's still okay, does grandma have the flu, etc. And we'll see what happens. That's a big challenge because for adults even, you know, if you were to say to me, you fear these things and it's so intrusive that it's interfering with your functioning, so we're just going to do them. <laughs> but we're not going to do any of what feels like the protective stuff. I've, I've had talks with clients before where they're like, I feel like what you're saying is let's go up and jump out of a plane, 
but don't use your parachute because that would be a compulsion. And ultimately, what we try to get to is saying, well, is, but are we really jumping out of the plane? It's the idea of jumping out of a plane. So you're right. We're not going to use the parachute. <laughs> we're going to do these jobs. But, but the reality is it's not reality-based. We're going to actually have these bad things happen. Could they happen? I suppose it could happen. But really what we're doing is we're practicing new learning in the brain. That is a really hard sell, though, sometimes, because some people get really scared at the idea of exposure. I mean, they have developed these complex compulsions, and sometimes for years, maybe many years, even at a child's age, because they were so afraid of that outcome. So thinking about treatment going, oh, so I'm going to have to go do those things, but not do any of the safe things that I do to survive those things? Like, that can be a hard sell for treatment. And so can you talk a little bit about that piece? Because even for parents, I mean, I certainly am guilty of it over the course of my parenthood thus far of going, oh, this is just going to set this kid off and it is not worth it. And so I am just going to, like, choose my battles and decide to do something else, right? Like, a lot of parents can get anxiety about their kids feeling that distress, too. And so can you talk a little bit about that piece in terms of, ERP, and it's tough. It is tough. And so I don't try to hide that and, and make it seem like that everyone's going to have a lot of work and that it's going to challenge. What I would say at the same time is every kid has something that makes them unique, some special skill that's unrelated to their distress, something that whether they're hardworking in spite of learning-related challenges whether they're thoughtful, whether they're caring, they have some type of positive characteristic, something that just is very positive about them. And so we want to promote those characteristics, which have kind of gotten lost in OCD. And at the same time, when OCD is coming up, having to do something that's very distressing, well, seeing that as a challenge, but a belief that I know this is really hard and I believe you can do it. I know this is a, a challenge and I believe you can do it. Instilling that confidence, that gets them that initial step, which continues to increase a sense of resiliency then for the kid. Well, they, they themselves can see it as a challenge, but something that is surmountable and that they can overcome. Yeah, that's a really great point. And it's reminding me really about that message that gets promoted really well, it seems, within the space program of really just letting your loved one know, like, you can do this. And maybe I haven't even allowed that space for you to try it. But I see that and I recognize how strong you are. And so I'm going to lean into your strength and allow you to continue to lead that, like allowing them that empowerment and that space or resiliency, as you said, to really recognize like, yeah, actually, I can do that. Because I think the message that inadvertently because it comes from, I think, a really good place, but inadvertently gets provided for the child is, yeah, I don't think you could do this. And so we do need to protect you from this situation. And sometimes, you know, I don't know, some people might say that explicitly, but most people are coming at it like, no, that was never in a million years my intention. And so we recognize that, but also recognize the strength of that person who's been surviving through all of these really intrusive thoughts that are very, very, we've talked a lot in this community about how when you're having intrusive thoughts and you're getting involved in these complex compulsion cycles at times, 
you're really in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And so if you think about that person, like they're hardwiring in their brain going, like, I am so anxious or so distressed. It's not always anxious. A lot of times it can be. Then, yeah, it makes sense that we want to try and protect and help and do the safety behaviors if it's just going to help them kind of calm down in that moment. But what we're learning in OCD is when we engage in that, it's just as effective as the person just engaging in it on their own, which is something that, correct me if I'm wrong, that space speaks to a lot in terms of if we reinforce some of those compulsions, then we can also be reinforcing that learning in the brain. And so that's an important piece of understanding the OCD puzzle. For sure. And, and, and space, is, as far as it a treatment program. I know you, you've talked about it in your prior podcast, but it stands for Supportive Parenting for Anxious Children Emotions. And SPACE essentially tries to encourage parents ways to to dial back certain accommodating behaviors that they themselves are doing, as well as, again, supporting parents that believe that they have in their own kids that's supportive statements and encouragement that their kid does have the ability to face their fears or face what's distressing for them. I mean, you know, this is just, this is a hallmark towards just getting people motivated, getting people to believe that they can do difficult things with resiliency. And so to some extent, viewing the work is like, hey, this is something that's going to be useful for you for your whole life. If you can overcome something that the challenging, distressing, that may be this annoying, exhausting, but, but you can still do it. This is something that's going to really bode well for your kids in general. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, one of the silver linings I like to point out with clients too, and for the family here, is that as much as I don't wish the distress, I don't wish the experience on anyone, Having an ability to embrace and sit with that uncertainty ends up being a gift. So there's a lot of misconceptions about OCD, and sometimes people perceive like, oh, it just means you're clean, or you just like things a certain way, or whatnot. I wish I was more OCD about that, and it can feel really offensive. And it's like, no, this is a very distressing condition. This is a very distressing disorder, and that can feel like that minimizes and dismisses some of the just torture, to be honest, that that some of the intrusions and just the exhaustion of the distress and the compulsions and all the whole package can be. But at the same time, I do think there is an advantage in a world that wants certainty. And if you do this, you can be happier. If you do this, you'll be more beautiful. You'll be stronger. You'll be thinner. You'll be richer. And people are always looking for the thing that can do that. And if you can embrace uncertainty, and even at, especially at a young age and learn that lesson early, doesn't mean that you're not going to have hardships in life. But wow, what a tool. What a tool to be able to go, I can be okay with that. I don't have to know. And, and I don't have to believe that this is going to change everything, right? Like I can, I can sit with that uncertainty. That is where I think OCD sufferers do get an advantage if they can learn how to embrace that. You talked about motivation. I think that's an important word as well. And not everyone is motivated, especially if we're looking at 
kiddos, usually the younger kiddos are going to go or the parents engage in space, which doesn't even involve the child directly in treatment. But as we get to some of our older kiddos, we can get to some resistance and as we can get to maybe our grown adult children that may be suffering with OCD. Maybe we were aware of that from a younger age, or maybe we're just learning now and we're like, oh, that's what's going on here. There can be some real resistance. And so speaking to the motivation level, if let's start at the teenage kind of level, the emerging adulthood that's coming. If someone's like, no, this is, I'm not going to go into treatment. I'm going to do the things that I have to do to survive. Oh, well, and they're, they're set on that. What are the options for parents and really the hope for your child if your child is really stuck in that treatment-resistant space? So ideally, there's always a way to get the kid involved in some capacity as far as it's, it's just, it can, it's, I think it's a little bit more effective if there's some type of willingness, even if it's a small amount, for them to be involved. But let's say, kind of using what you're saying, that no go, they're not willing to do this under no circumstance whatsoever. And that can be so defeating for parents. And a lot of times, a lot of therapists will, unfortunately, they may even take the bait. This is child therapists. And they'll say, you know, it just seems like your kid's not ready. And just wait it out. Maybe they'll have that spark. Well, in, in those cases, work, because remember, this does not impact just the child or teenager or adult kid. It, it impacts their loved ones. So family may not be doing certain behavior. Maybe they're not doing certain behaviors. Maybe they're doing behaviors too much. Like they're, they're needing to wash the laundry repeatedly. Maybe they're not using it. There's intrusive, unwanted obsessions over harmful objects. Maybe they're not using knives in the home anymore. They're using plastic knives. So lo and behold, in working with the clinician, parents can start taking steps to reduce their accommodating behaviors. Again, ways that they're accommodating towards the OCD. And for them, honestly, to, to regain a sense of confidence and a resiliency, we can use these. Maybe our child may have a strong, strong reaction. They may have a temper tantrum. They may say some really vile and hurtful things. And we can, we can actually manage the distress that we experience this. We don't have to be held a victim by OCD, which can honestly act almost as if like a terrorist or, or a bully that we can, we can handle it. And lo and behold, that instills confidence for loved ones. It's very important that they have to be consistent about this as well. But this is really can be helpful. And then likewise, this changes the dynamic because the main thing is the current dynamic is not working for the family. It's very, very broken. And so this changes the dynamic in a way that makes it more livable and instills their hope for others involved. Yeah. And so you're making a really good point in terms of even if your child isn't willing or able at that point to feel like they can engage in the process, you again, as we've talked about, because our engagement in the compulsions can reinforce learning, our lack of engagement in the process can also engage new learning. And so even 
changing or getting support for you, the cheerleader of your loved one and saying, okay, well, we can look at, you know, maybe some of the things where we're engaging in these accommodations and change that, that is going to present a shift and the child might have a big reaction to it and not like that. But in time, again, as we have that exposure piece and that lack of engagement from our standpoint as a family member in the, in the compulsion, so the response prevention piece, there's still a lot of hope. And what you're saying, too, is if I'm hearing you correctly, and it, you know, certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but if you can build a bridge and build that rapport, get a little bit of buy-in with the child, which might take some more time with certain people than others, then usually you can make some progress. But even if you feel like, nope, they're not going to and I'm not going to do that, there are things that you can do that will very much benefit your loved one as they engage in the process. Yeah, so essentially that parents or loved ones, spouse, they don't have to just be complacent and feeling like, hey, there's no actions that can be taken that we just have to do the waiting game. There is stuff that could be done for them that can give them a sense of hope. And then I'd say for whoever it is, has OCD, well, sometimes maybe if they're not ready yet, which can vary, it really can vary. There's no one size fits all. It can take time. You know, what, what I'd like to think of if, if someone, let's say, wanted to engage in weight loss because they're feeling overweight, well, they could change their diet. They could start exercising more. If it was so simple, that would, be, that would really work. But usually there's a lot of things where it's hard to get that motivation. Take time. And sometimes it is about being supportive to the kid. They're willing to have sessions where it can help build that connection and build that sense of like, this is something that they want to work on and it's got it in the way of their lives. And that may, that may take time. I mean, it's, it really, for the cases that I work with in some cases, Kid is ready to go. They're ready. They're motivated. That's awesome. In that case, well, treatment can be potentially very, very efficient, effective. Doesn't mean that there's a lot of hurdles because this is something very difficult. And in other cases, their motivation can wane a little bit. It's there. It's not there. In some cases, it's just not really there. And so it, it really varies. And we, we necessarily think of this as treatment is always going to be only three months long. Maybe sometimes treatment is significantly longer and you just have to think about it. It takes time for some people to overcome things that are difficult and very distressing. Yeah. And, you know, and to to build trust even sometimes because we all have different experiences we've gone through in life, particularly for clients that may have some trauma in their background or whatnot, or just other difficult relational paths where trusting another is harder, then it can be really hard to put your trust in another person, let alone say, oh, yeah, okay, so I'm going to essentially go on this airplane and jump out without my parachute, sure, yeah. So uh, in terms of building that trust, certainly that's important. But you're right, like when for some people, and certainly this can happen for adults, but I find it <laughs> often with kids, can be very efficient because they're so concrete that once they get it and they feel that hope and they they love that feeling of not having to feel like so distressed about this thing and not even really even worry about some of those things anymore, then they're like ready to go and boom, 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 boom. You can kind of shoot through treatment sometimes. So it can really vary. 
But what I like is you're you're setting that expectation that it could be brief and efficient or it could be ongoing depending on the uniqueness of each person's case because we're all individuals and have our unique brains and our unique ways of imagining for better, for worse, so many different scenarios. And when you think about OCD, your imagination is boundless in terms of what it can come up with in terms of these intrusive thoughts or these safety behaviors and compulsions that are needed or felt like they're needed. And feeling, I think, is a really operative word there. Like it's the thought is one thing, but it's that feeling of distress that often leads to the compulsion, that feeling of, ooh, I've got to resolve this somehow or avoid it or whatever. And so, yeah, I think that's a really good point in terms of it can be brief, it can be longer. We're all individuals with different scenarios. In a moment here, I want to talk a little bit about the spouses because we've alluded to that. But I was going to ask because I'm just really recently actually learning a little bit about ICBT. Before you and I started talking, we were talking about CBTI and I'm like, man, CBT has so many facets to it. So ICBT, inference-based CBT versus CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which you also specialize in. But I don't know if, have you heard much about inferential confusion and the whole ICBT model? I have heard a lot about it. It is something that has actually been in place for actually many years. It just, I'd say more recently, it almost feels like in the past year, really taken a lot more hold for a lot of providers where more providers are are getting trained in that modality as well, providing another option for families, uh, patients to to do as well. Yeah. So that's a a really great point because part of what I have started to really think about in terms of, especially since both are evidence-based, is I love that there's more options. I love that there is more than one potential way to ride a horse. It's very different in the way that it's conceptualized, but similar to how, you know, when we were talking about the treatment resistant client and you were mentioning that, you know, the the family's involvement in the reaction, the compulsory reactions and family accommodation can make some changes for that treatment resistant person. Well, also, it seems like ICBT is potentially an option because it it approaches from a place of inferential confusion instead of that exposure. But yeah, it is it is something that here in the United States is getting more traction at this point, but has been used more broadly outside of the U.S., which we certainly have an audience outside of the U.S. as well. So that is good to know. So in terms of thinking about this now with partners, (laughs) partners or spouses, this can get tricky. Even adult siblings, the level of authority or really impact that you have changes and shifts in different relationships. And in terms of engaging with partners where OCD can really be popping in and adding a lot of distress. This can be really difficult, especially whether you have a family or not that you're also trying to raise here and help your loved one. And so can we talk about that dynamic in terms of it popping up for partners, spouses, 
boyfriends, girlfriends, and just how that kind of changes when you have more of an intimate relationship or adult relationship, if we were thinking, you know, between siblings, not, not intimate, but familial. You're both adults and you don't have that same impact as a parent to a child. And that can get tricky. Sure. And, and you know, what I've been saying is that what, what is something that's very commonplace when someone is struggling, if, if you took the, if someone twists their ankle, uh-huh. there's a loved one nearby, well, lo and behold, they're going to do what they can to help them. They're going to try to help them get their foot straight. They need ice. And I, and I can be a bit clumsy. So lo and behold, I, you know, if I using kitchen knives, cut my finger and there's blood. Well, if, unfortunately, my, my wife will come, she'll check on me, she'll be getting a band-aid. These things are very useful. We don't want to have something where it's, it's just bleeding, I'm bleeding endlessly. Right. Getting help from someone. These things help in the short run where OCD becomes a bit trickier than, let's say, other related issues. If someone is in really distress, I'm going to use the example of someone's having harm-related obsessions, that that feels foreign to them again, because this is OCD. A person with OCD, they don't want to have something. So they watch some movie, scary movie, and then suddenly they get an intrusive thought. Oh my God, what if I were to do this? Like, what if I were to hurt someone else? What if I were to hurt you? Like, this is not what I want. This is not who I am. Well, if you think about Sam with the as the band-aid, the person who's the level one, it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. They're going to provide that reassurance. You know, you wouldn't do that. You're such a kind person. They may provide it more than once. <laughs> the CD, they're going to provide it many, many times. Right. And that would normally, in a non-OCD case, be very helpful. But with OCD, person gets stuck. And lo and behold, it becomes muddier yeah. and muddier. And it also can start providing the significant other or whoever it is feeling like, what I'm doing is not helping and they can become frustrated. They can become even resentful because they're thinking they're helping, but it's not helping. So it just really can impair relationships in just a very, an unfortunate way. And that's really where getting appropriate guidance from a specialist is very, very useful. So the significant other, the, the brother, the sister, they know how to respond in a way that can be supportive, but isn't accommodating, isn't overly reassuring to the sufferer. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because I, I like that you highlighted the point of like this in a lot of other scenarios would be just like a loving, supportive response. And so that's where it gets tricky because family is like, or partners are like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to be loving and supportive for that situation where maybe it's your co-parent and your children are there and you're like, okay, I need this person to not unravel so that the kids are okay and we're all okay. And they're engaging in some of these reassurances. It can be really challenging for them to know like how to navigate that because you're trying to take care of the children and protect them. You're trying to help your spouse, which you're not necessarily understanding why they are getting stuck. It can be depending on the day. It can you could be like wildly on board of like comforting or you could be annoyed as hell and be like, oh my gosh, again with this crap. And so you get some of the irritation can come in. But it's really tricky because whereas like, you know, for an eight year old, 
we could say, I'm not opening the door tough. And the eight-year-old might see some stuff back upset. But, you know, when it's, when it's your romantic partner or another adult that you don't have that same relationship and authoritative pull with, it can get really challenging in terms of, even for the kids, but this can happen for adults too, having their kind of blowout tantrum moment, some threats can be made, some some really challenging threats. I'm going to leave if, you, if you're not even going to support me, or I could hurt myself if you don't do this for me. And that can put an intense amount of pressure there on the spouse. And so in terms of Working through some of those challenges, I love what you said about getting connected with a therapist or an expert in terms of like really expanding that team. So it's not just you (laughs) feeling the pressure of that and you can have somebody else helping to guide that process. But any other thoughts in terms of like strategies or just even nuggets of hope that can be helpful in treatment? One one thing that I think... I'm going to try to apply to both, but first talk about for the loved ones. It's very important to externalize OCD from the sufferer. So it's not like the OCD has muddied everything where the person seems like all they are is the OCD, but it's important to externalize it. So the behaviors that they do as a result of the OCD. So let's say, for instance, someone has to do, they have this uh, just right feeling that they have to do. And lo and behold, they have a whole toothbrush routine that they do where they have to brush their teeth again and again and again and again. They have to do it a certain counting way. When they forget, do it again and again and again and again. Now, all of a sudden, loved one has to stand next to them as they do this whole routine. And this is so exhausting. Right. Now, where the loved one could come and when you're externalizing it, they can ask for the peace that involves something. There can be like a real demand. Hey, if you really love me, if you really love me, you're going to stand next to me. If you care and stand, you, you would stand next to me. You want to support me. The person who's the loved one can say, I'm not sure me standing here is helping you or if it's helping your OCD. And I really want to be helpful for you, but I, I really don't want to be helpful to OCD and get power. I don't. I want to be giving power to you. And in this case, distinguishing between the person who you really care about and OCD with getting in the way of things. And, and this also, I would say, in turn, through this externalizing, it takes away the emotional appeal that frequently pulls in loved ones because it's so they don't want to see their person struggling. And this may be a way to get them to pull themselves out. And also, I'd say, put more onus on the sufferer to acknowledge a little bit more that what they're doing may be promoting OCD more than allowing them to grow away from OCD. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. But as we get into this process more, we absolutely can comfort and love on our loved ones, on our OCD sufferers, and validate that and validate ourselves. But it's different when we get wrapped up in the content, which OCD would love for you to get wrapped up into. So I love that because I'm not sure, but I love you and I want to help you. And since I that could be helping the OCD, I'm not like we're not even getting into the content of why you need to stand there while I'm brushing my teeth. 
right? And so we can comment on, I love you as the person and this is hard without engaging in the reason why they feel compelled to have you right there or have your participation in some way in the content of their obsessions and compulsions. And so, yeah, in terms of a quick and dirty little trick that I often recommend for clients, for the community here, is to really look at the function of what the behavior is, okay? And so if the function is you need to stand there to reduce distress and that's contingent on you, oh, this sounds like an OCD trap, right? So in terms of I love you and because I love you and I'm not sure, I'm going to err on the side of maybe this is what's happening and I'm going to walk away because I love you so much. The person is probably not going to love that, but that feels different than no, I can't like, or just hurry. Like, you know, that feels different in terms of the engagement. You might still have a partner fight back and go, no, this isn't what I want from you. But you, again, you don't have to engage with the content. And ultimately that is really being driven from a place of fear and distress in your loved one. And we can recognize that. I think it, any of us, when we're like in a in a certain space where we're feeling distressed, our our demeanor, our tolerance, our whatnot, like we just don't come across always super well. We all have our moments, right? And your loved one is getting stuck in these moments perpetually. And so, while it's totally legit to be annoyed by that or over that. We can also go, okay, well, later when we've all calmed down from this, we can talk about like, how we address this issue between us. And you kind of snapped at me. And really, I am trying to love you. It's the most loving thing I can do is to not engage. But, you know, in that moment, we can just say, okay, I'm going to park that here. <laughs> I don't have to get lost in the content because the content can feel very personal. But really, it's coming from that place of the OCD fear, the distress. So I, I like that in terms of, yeah presenting that uncertainty and saying, yeah, I don't know if this is going to be helpful. So I'm not going to do that. And it can be really hard too when there are other, when there's an audience watching, whether you're around coworkers, family, the children, if it's, if it's two parents, that's really, really challenging. And so when you have onlookers, any ideas for family members who might be trying to toe the line, not get engaged in the compulsions, but also feel like there are a bunch of people watching you and you probably seem a little heartless in terms of how you're responding to your loved one, but you're also trying to not engage in the compulsion, if that makes sense. Sure. I'd say it's interesting is often the consequence, even for people with OCD and they're, they're struggling, if there's some type of significant consequence, they may not do the compulsion. That's true. Uh, so, you know, if, for instance, if they're a kid and all of their friends are, are brushing their teeth, that was the example we were giving before, a certain way, they may do it the wrong way, which is what we actually want to encourage. But because there's more of that potential consequence that they would get questions asked, people would give them a funny look. However, let's say going back to your initial question where you have a parent and they're worried that their kid is going to have a complete meltdown if they're at the grocery store and they need to buy things of a certain size, for instance, because everything has to be just the right size. And they're with, they're with their kid and keep pointing at the same thing again and again and again. Well, 
sometimes things can be challenging and I wish it weren't easier. And the reality is, I do believe they have overcome challenges and it doesn't mean that it's going to be a pleasant one. And this is what we're talking about. The treatment is not an easy thing. And there may be some embarrassments. And for parents or for loved ones, you can handle this. Whatever distress comes along with that, you can handle it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it's going to be uncomfortable, but you can handle it. And then you can hit the, the fast forward button. You may not get the reinforcement. Okay, I really loved how you handled when I had a complete temper tantrum and lost my cool. Thank you so much. Mom, dad, you are the greatest dad ever. Just like a Hallmark card. Thank you. It won't work like that. I think that's every parent's dream. But what I would say is maybe take time afterwards to think about it like, wow, this was really difficult for me. My normal inclination would have been to just jump in, soothe my kid. And I was able to sit with that and handle that. And I would say if there's another person involved, if there's like another parent, take time to recognize what they did well. It's what needs for it. So, if, you know, if one person did it really well, that was really hard for you. And really glad how even when little Johnny was just losing his cool, throwing things in a supermarket, you were able to maintain a certain level of emotional balance, not give in. And this is really great. And I'm really proud of you. And you set a great example for me. This is just how confidence starts to get raised, where again, there's that free sense of, you know, the stinks, hate it. We'd probably rather not have it. Yeah. And believe we can handle it. Well, and that's such great feedback for parenting at large. Like, have your village, have your people. If you are co-parenting, awesome. If you're a single parent, you can still have amazing other people coming in, whether it's family, maybe your parents, another single parent, maybe you get involved in a group where people can come and have play dates for the kids and for the parents, they can get some support. But like, get your community because we do all need that validation and we're not going to be able to keep giving and giving and giving and not have anybody else around to go like, where to go? What are you doing this thing? The therapist too can be a cheerleader and a supporter in that and giving you that feedback and really encouraging you because you're right. They're tough. The OCD sufferers tough. So are you. You're tough too. And you guys have made it to this point. You might feel like, oh my gosh, we're barely holding on, but you're holding on and you've made it through a lot and you're going to make it through a lot more. And so, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. I'm reminded of a time my son has, it's more than just a phobia of bees because he does have a lot of the OCD thoughts and very advanced compulsions that will sometimes come in about avoiding outdoors or where he has to walk on a sidewalk because what if a bee pops out of the grass or what times of year are ideal because the bees are gone because the colder weather here in in the midwest and i can remember we were out once and he thought he saw a bee and he probably did there was a time when bees were out and he was very hyper vigilant for them but he had made a lot of progress on his hierarchy and whatnot in doing some erp around the bee work but he it caught him off guard he flipped out and I think he was just tired and there were just a lot of different things going but he flipped out and I became aware of what the situation was we were standing in line for like this little train ride and so he's losing his business screaming at the top of his lungs and I am holding him to keep him from like just literally like disappearing in a crowd of hysteria 
And I remember him going, but there's a bee, there's a bee. And so now I'm very aware that he has an, uh, he has a whole OCD thing about all flying creatures now, not just bees, but generalize it out to any bug insect that flies. And so I'm like, okay, so if there's a bee, then what are we going to do? How are we going to boss back our OCD? And I'm like, come on, bee, come get us. Here we are. And the parents around me were like, no, he's scared. You don't understand. He thinks there's a bee. And I'm like, I've met him. I do understand. Plus, he's screaming. It's a, it's a bit obvious. But I remember, and I'm the therapist, and I do this, right? But I remember going, man, there's like 10 parents standing with their kids. Everyone's like this, staring at us. And they're all like, but he's scared. It's a bee. It's a bee. And I'm like, right, right. And so I'm like, come on, bee. Show us what you're made of. You can get me right here. You know, and they were like, what is this mom's problem? And so, yeah, I mean, I like to think pretty confident and not too concerned in terms of what the peanut gallery has to say. Everybody can offer something, but until they're in the arena with me and my kid and having that rapport and that relationship and doing life with us, I don't really care what they say. But that was a hard moment. I remember looking up to all these eyes and these terrified people and they're like, why? Why is she like? Agging the bee on, right? And the time passed. The bee went away. His anxiety came down. We went on the train ride. We talked about how fear, even the feeling of fear, can be a trigger for his OCD because he just feels like, okay, I'm in danger and all that. And so we're talking it out. But I was sitting there going, boy, that didn't really go that great. The reality is it did go great because he was able to recover and spend the rest of the time outdoors and not panic attack level about the bees. But at the same time, it is hard when when people when a crowd is looking at you and they're like, don't you understand? He just needs he just needs protection from the bee. And I'm like, yeah, I got it. I, I'm, I'm aware of the situation. And, and so there can be that pressure as a parent sometimes to just give in and do the thing. And so, yeah, it it can get really challenging, but I really like that piece where you can say, hey, great job. We had some dear friends with us that we were like spending the day with and they were like, and so I remember texting them like, I'm sorry, this was ultimately really good for my son, but I'm sorry if that felt like dysregulating for you all. And, And they were wonderful about it. No, I'm so glad that you were able to help him through that. Don't be sorry. But even like that feeling, that need for me to be like, oh, my gosh, did we just make everybody else uncomfortable, you know, and have to deal with all of that? That's some of the pressure that people might be facing when dealing with some of these OCD cycles. I agree, though, too, with you that sometimes, especially if there's peers around, and this is part of the beauty of peer learning, (laughs) um, Sometimes they won't do it because they don't want to be embarrassed or seem weird, you know, around their friends or their peers or be made fun of for it. And so what they would do at home, or they might go into excess even more at home to compensate, they won't always do when people are around. And that is a great moment to bridge to them, too, and go, hey, you are capable, even if it was hard in this situation, to do this because you are strong. So when you think you can't do it, you have already shown us that you can do it in these different settings. It's it's hard, but you can. And so feeling empowered about that is good, too. For sure, for sure. And thinking about that example that you just gave with your child, where it sounds like you did really successfully, which is a message for all parents, is you trusted your instincts. 
maybe what would work with some other brands doesn't work in your situation. What you know will be helpful in the long run. It's easy to go to, oh, it's a bit uncomfortable. I don't want people to stare at us. Like, you know, just kind of like take your kid aside, maybe even skip the activity. But you trusted your instincts. Like, hey, we're going to do something that will feel a little bit different. Or you're going to make this as a challenge. Like, ah, with the bees. But this is what, what I think my kid will need that will be the most helpful. And, and that that's really something that's important for our families in general. That what may work for others is not going to work for them. And they have to do what they feel is in their own interest for their family, for their kid. Yeah. Thank you. That is a, that's a a wonderful reminder and good piece of feedback. And I think also a really good point for our community, because I think going into this process, sometimes parents will say, well, I don't know how to trust my instincts anymore because I feel like all my instinctual things were actually reassurance or compulsory. And what if I'm reinforcing the learning in the brain or whatever? And so it can be hard sometimes for them to trust themselves, especially I feel like newer into the diagnosis because they're like, but is that a compulsion or not? Or am I, was that OCD or not? And I tell what I tell families often when they're getting into that point of like, I get it that it's easy for me to say, but let's take a deep breath and scale back. Like you don't have to be perfect. Give yourself some grace and you still know your child best. And so what if you engaged in it and it was a compulsion? Okay. And moving on, we'll move on. Like we ha- we'll have plenty of opportunity. And even the awareness, could have that been a compulsion? Well, that's a nice thing to be able to think about in terms of planning. Like, hmm, this gets to be a tricky situation. So maybe I'll just kind of preload myself with what are some of our RP, our response prevention things I could do and have in my arsenal. But overall, like, we're all going to make mistakes from time to time, and that's okay. And so ultimately, yeah, you do know your child and... It can be hard to not get caught up in the, but am I engaging in this too much? And there can be a lot of anxiety on the side of the parents in terms of like wanting to do a good enough job. But often good enough for a lot of parents is like they want to do it perfectly because they're worried that it's going to all unravel. And it's like, no, it's not all going to unravel for one thing. We didn't get here because of one thing. We got here because of repeated, 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 repeated use of different compulsions that have reinforced these sticky, intrusive thoughts. But you know what? If you miss one, you miss one. On to the next. Like, there'll be another, there'll be another shot. (laughs) For sure. I mean, you know, I love sports. And so I kind of think of it from like a sports analogy. Not every game is a Super Bowl. Every game is the World Cup final. Yeah. It's, there are so many opportunities. It doesn't mean that you should just say, okay, and just hold off for for the next several years, but not everything rides on that one one decision. How you responded to your kid, you can have lots of opportunities. So cut yourself some slack, and there's still the opportunity to do something a bit differently. Troubleshooting, like okay, well, maybe in that time, with your B example, you did take the kid aside and you kept providing reassurance. The whole outing did not work. Okay. okay. Maybe this didn't go as planned, but like, let's think about this. Is something similar work to happen? Are we going to have another event? What can we do differently? Is there anything that we could do to break the cycle? That is something that will be very helpful. And that's something that's useful. I mean, parenting is 
such a, such a challenge and it involves being adaptive. What may work for some kids does not work for other kids. Right. And what works for some kids most times or sometimes might not work all the time. And so it's a constant process. But I think it's anytime we can give ourselves permission, which please give y'all give yourself permission so you don't have to be perfect. And this is part of the beauty, too, about being connected in treatment to a good expert, a good clinician, a community, a support group where you can be like, yes, I did the thing. I did the thing. And they're like, eh, everybody does it sometimes. It's it's what happens. We pick up from here and we keep moving. Like, that's really important. And so your therapist also can help if you're like getting really stuck in there to go, hey, give yourself some grace. Maybe plan a date night for you. Get a sitter. Oh, but they'll have a hard time. Yeah, they'll have a hard time either way. Go fill your cup. Do what you need. Do some self-care. Have a date night. Go hang out with a friend, have coffee, be by yourself where no one's touching you or anything. Like, just do whatever you need. You know what is going to be re-energizing to you and do it. And that can make a really huge difference. So I think that's a really good point. Well, you know what? As we are getting to a close, I know that you are going to be presenting this year at the ADAA conference here in the spring. April. Yeah, in April, just around the corner. And I'm going to put a link to your website on ocdfamilypodcast.com if you want to learn more about Dr. Spiegel, and especially if you're within the state of California or New York. And again, because you hold licenses in both, you're able to see people that are within the state. Obviously, that would be telehealth for New York because that would be a one heck of a commute. But you have a blend of in-person and telehealth in California. Certainly, we will put a link there so you can find out more. So as we close out, any last thoughts that you'd like to share? You know, reiterating the message, there's no one size fits all. So if your kid or, you know, whoever it is, is they're ready to go with treatment, fantastic. And let's run with it. And that still means that you're going to be involved in the process, too, for really to be effective. But let's say in cases where they have one foot in the door and one foot out the door, it it doesn't mean you just have to wait till everything's involved. Everything's perfect. Things have a tendency to be messy and there still are steps that can be taken. And I think like, you know, the most important thing is to see that there is hope and there is some way to move forward. And while it can feel like a very lonely process. There are other people who have been there before other, you know, there's support groups for families with OCDs. There's other ways to always get support. Even if you, you feel like your situation is just truly unique, there's w- other ways to get support. So this process can feel more bearable and more able to have positive steps, you know, have a, a good, stronger direction. I really like that because it reiterates one of the themes, which is a theme for a purpose here at OCD Family Podcast, that you're not alone. And so really remembering that. But also, whether it's marriage or children or house or whatnot, you know, all these different kind of milestones that sometimes people anticipate in life, if they want that, it doesn't have to be on everybody's wish list. But it's Often a thing of like, well, you know, is it a good time to have kids? Well, when is when is a good time to have kids? As all of 2019, like who delivered there and 
2020, which you have, I'm sure, because you have a two-year-old. You were you have a pandemic baby here that you had to go through the challenges. Nobody saw that coming. But there's never like we can optimize in our mind so many things, but because life has so many moving parts to it, it's always a little bit messy. And so if we're waiting for the the need for stars to align here, the good news is, you know what? You can be like, it's so smoggy to use an L.A. Like the smog is real. (laughs) I can't even see the stars. Forgot they're there. Get a thing like that's okay because there are still things we can do within the mess, within the fog, within the muddiness of it all. And there's still hope that we can make some little shifts and, and, and make some connections with support, getting connected to other people where at least we can start to learn and really apply some of those different pieces that can make pretty profound change. And you never know. I mean, some I, I certainly will get cases where the family is like, this is just a severe case. And it is on face value. It's a severe case. And sometimes it resolves very quickly. And sometimes they take longer. And so again, there's no assurances of like how long treatment's going to be or whatnot. But the good news is no matter how intense things feel, it's okay. Progress and hope are still available and we can, there's still support out there at the very least. And so, yeah, it can be messy. And you know what? The reality is whether everyone's like profile pictures on Instagram or whatever, it look perfect or not, we're all in the mess. We are all in the mess. So welcome to the mess. You're not alone and there's hope. And so I think that's a really great note to end on. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for your time. And hey, ADAA, right around the corner. Thank you for that. For today's intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of each show, I wanted to start off by highlighting some of the details. That's right. Got to get the details in there regarding that ADAA conference I was just talking with Dr. Spiegel about. It's being held in Washington, D.C. a little over a month away. The dates are April 13th through 16th, and Dr. Spiegel will be presenting on April 14th, which is a Friday at 1045 Eastern, and he will be presenting alongside Dr. Sarah Hayter, and the session is called, Am I Doing This Right? (laughs) Am I Doing This Right? Steps to Take When Exposures Are Not Working. So if you go to this episode's blog post, you'll find a link to the ADAA conference info and a lovely infographic that ADAA has distributed to help advertise this great presentation. Secondly, I wanted to share a practical tool that could help reinforce this cognitive feedback loop that we started talking about at the top of the show. So you remember me sharing about how this overview is helpful, even though we've talked about this content in one way or another before on the show, because reviewing the information in an informative matter can be helpful. What went well? What didn't? How did this go for us? And even Dr. Spiegel's sharing about times where maybe an exposure really falls flat, and we know we gave in to our loved one's OCD. Revisiting this idea of what went well, what would have made this better, how can we plan for next time, there's a huge benefit to the practice. So I like to incorporate this idea and practically apply it when doing ERP. Whether it's in session as a clinician, facilitating this for my clients, or in facilitating practice for my son here at home when we do our ERP homework throughout any given week, 
And how I do this is with bravery tickets. Now, I want to give credit where credit is due and let everyone know I got this great concept from Dr. Irene Wagner during a training a few years ago. But I find it especially helpful when working with kids and families. And I just had a little fun and created my own bravery tickets based on what I learned. So here's the thing. I find these especially helpful when working with kiddos and families and generally will present them in my pediatric cases. Kids are driven and motivated by rewards, and rewards, they sometimes get a little bit controversial when it comes to treatment because, well, the argument can be made, like, are we paying or bribing for desired behaviors? They're just supposed to do it, but I see it differently. I look at these as an opportunity to reward strength, courage, and, well, bravery. So to see and or download my PDF for bravery tickets or to get an idea for creating your own, I just created my own based on Dr. Wagner's excellent training, head on over to OCDFamilyPodcast.com and you'll be able to find a link for them on the blog post for this episode. This is season one, episode 32. 32! Wow! 32. And feel free to utilize that resource. The premise is this, though. You write the date of the exposure and response prevention practice that you're doing, whether planned or life just presented the opportunity to you. There you go. And then you write down how you earned your ticket. And it doesn't mean doing ERP perfectly every time. Maybe you'll have a hiccup. But you write down what you learned. So if we were to use this with my son's bee example from earlier in the show, it might say, I saw bees and bugs outside and I didn't leave and I didn't get stung. And it took some time, but my anxiety, well, it went down. Often I will have folks write out their SUDS rating, which is the subjective units for distress scale that we use, typically 1 to 10, for our newer fam. And voila, you have yourself a bravery ticket. Now, I do like to set up rewards charts in conjunction with these bravery tickets because I find rewarding the strength for our OCD warriors motivates them to want to do more. And as they get more and more into the treatment, the motivation of feeling relief, relief that isn't coming at the ever so temporary result of a compulsion, but in eviscerating some of these thoughts, it's invaluable. And let me highlight this. Just because it's a reward, it doesn't mean it has to cost money. I get it. Money is tight. Inflation is real. There are a lot of things going on that are impacting finances. But hey, Carving out and finding some extra one-on-one time. My parents used to do that with us. They called it special time. And it was. It was special. It was like, make your bed and help with the dishes. And you earn stars and you get to special time. And special time was often one of the greatest prizes we could get. Special time was better than any crappy toy or gumball that we could earn. Whether it was sitting down and playing Candyland or nowadays maybe exploring a realm or two in Minecraft watching a show together, or creating a dessert. Also, maybe earning some extra screen time or staying up 20 minutes later or a get-out-of-a-chore-free card. I wouldn't mind that kind of Monopoly card over here. Does this count for parents too? I mean, these are all rewards that can be gifted without having to spend a dime. And rewarding quickly and consistently at the start of an ERP journey is going to help. You did it once, and that was really hard, and you got a reward. You did it once again, and you're still doing it, and you get a reward. Now we're going to work on doing it three times, and then we're going to get a reward. We want that buy-in. We want that encouragement. We need those quick wins in the beginning. 
And then as we kind of get the ropes and get the hang of things, we can start to have some bigger goals and a more intermittent reward schedule. But ultimately, as we kind of take things one step at a time, the work grows easier, not because the thoughts aren't hard, but because our confidence in recognizing our power, our strength, and our ability to live to our values, even when distress is still there, getting to do the things, living our life. Nothing is more rewarding than that. Because your child, your loved one, your sibling, your parent, your adult child, your partner, your spouse, they're doing the things. And it's super brave. But please know, even though I said I use these bravery tickets mostly in pediatric cases, please know, bravery isn't just worth validating in kids. And so while an adult may or may not want to print off my cutesy little bravery ticket, even writing on your notes app, on your phone, or Sending yourself a text message. I really like this. I like to send myself text messages of things that I want to be able to locate wherever I am and be like, oh, where did I put that? Oh, I have it in a text message to myself. But sending a text message to yourself that says, hey, you did the thing. Way to go, warrior. Again, it allows you or your loved one the opportunity to just validate and recognize bravery, strength, courage. And so reinforcing that cognitive feedback loop can be so helpful, not only to encourage, but to recognize what we did learn through the process. And hey, don't forget to treat yourself too, because you're working hard. So whether it's giving yourself a night off, delegating something off your to-do list, saving room for dessert, sugar, carbs, fat, whatever or not, don't forget that having our strength recognized isn't something we just do for kids and that we age out of and just suck it up, buttercup, because this is what we do. We need to reward ourselves. We need to pat ourselves on the back and say, good job. This was hard. We need to treat ourselves too. So this week, whether filling out a bravery ticket, sending yourself a text, or treating yourself, that's right, treat yourself. Let's commit to practicing this at least one time. Let's commit to reinforcing the kind of loops we want in our lives and say uh, bye-bye now to those spirals. And with that, y'all, I hope you have a great week. And I'll look forward to being back with you and our special guest, Christina Orlova, the OCD Whisperer, next week as we talk about ICBT. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like Dr. Siegel and me talking about OCD. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.